0: You know, our next speaker is Fritz uh, Landman. He's bringing some unique skills to the table. He's an entrepreneur and an investor, someone that's done both successfully. He was at Microsoft for a while where he led a $240 million investment into Facebook in 2007. I think that's done well. He's also invested in 70 technology companies, including Square, Pinterest, and Wish, a a few of them that I've heard of. And now he's um, the CEO of ClassPass. So Fritz, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, I'm going to start with. For people that don't know, what what does ClassPass do?
1: Yeah, so ClassPass is uh, we like to say the world's largest uh, health and wellness membership. Uh, so you pay a monthly subscription, and you can choose from many different tiers depending on what your your budget is. And then you can access our network of thirty thousand different gyms, fitness studios, and wellness providers. So the idea being, one day you might want to go to a traditional gym and lift weights. The next day, I go to yoga class. The next day, I do boxing, uh, then have a sports therapy massage or go to an infrared sauna. So you can really kind of mix and match your routine and have a membership to all of these places you know, through one app.
0: So you're the CEO now. And from what I understand, you weren't even involved in the company when it started. So how'd you get, how'd you end up with the CEO? Tell me, tell me the journey you've taken.
1: Yeah, Pyle, the uh, founder of ClassPass, has a uh, a great track record of recruiting investors to come work for the company. I think several of us on the management team started as angel investors. So, yeah, so so my story in, of involvement was um, really I did I started as an investor. So I was living in New York City uh, after a long career at Microsoft. You mentioned the Facebook investment we we did there. I like to joke that was the uh, best corporate venture investment and worst GP remuneration in history. <laughs> Um, but uh so did a startup in Seattle and sold it, moved to New York, uh, and started a couple of businesses. One was a sort of a machine learning driven hearing aid company called Doppler Labs. Another was a business that started with my wife that Greylock ended up backing. Um, and so I was incubating companies and met Pyle, uh, the founder of ClassPass. It was actually called Classtivity at the at the time. Uh she had been working on concepts under this company's umbrella for three three years before that several different name changes. It was called Dabble NYC at one point. Um, and I met her when she was, had the idea to pivot it to a recurring subscription and she was going to focus it on studio fitness, mm-hmm. you know, the boutique fitness movement. Um, and and so the original class pass was called the Passport uh, and I led the seed round to fund the company's sort of evolution into class pass with my partner, Hank, and a bunch of angels that I, I do deals with. Uh, and then about uh, nine months after that, we led the Series A, which is the first and only and probably last time I'll ever do that. <laughs> um, basically, had introduced Pile to a bunch of VC friends. She had several term sheets, but um, she wanted to, me to spend more of my time on the business. So um talked to a friend who uh, is a, a partner at uh, CRV Sargur, and he said, hey, if, if you money and, and take the board seat, you know, I'm in. So we did the round together. I became the um, executive chairman of the company, uh, to reflect my sort of more hands-on involvement than just being a passive investor. And that was, a um, the relationship for maybe six to 12 months. Um, and at, at which point pile asked me to step in and help her operate the business day to day. So I agreed to do that as kind of a one-year tour of duty. And, uh, here we are now over four and a half years later. Uh, and eventually the roles just sort of naturally evolved. She was spending more time operating like a chairman, working on key strategy issues, product issues. And I was sort of running more of the day-to-day management and had fallen in love with it, and developed a vision for where we could take it. So here I am now as a, yeah, angel, then chairman, then uh, CEO.
0: Yeah, that's a bit different path than I normally see. It's, it's I got to give credit to a founder to, to recruit her replacement from the investors. Um ClassPass, when I think about it, you, you talk about a subscription service, but at the heart, it's a marketplace. So, what are the biggest challenges of growing a marketplace, especially with so many small, small, I guess, you know, businesses that you're representing and getting on the platform?
1: It's an incredibly complicated model because it's a combination of a subscription, like a Netflix or Spotify, with a marketplace, like you know, a Priceline or a Booking or a traditional sort of marketplace business. Um, I'd say the most challenging part of running a marketplace is just managing the two sides and balancing the the interests of the you know we call it the triangle. You have your users, you have your suppliers, and then you have your your company and your shareholders. Class Pass. So there's these three interested parties, and every decision you make, you have to think about how is this going to impact each constituency. Um, and we've been through several business model iterations and stuff, and um, and, and that is tricky. I think bringing especially suppliers along, um, as you change your model and iterate to improve it. Uh, you have to kind of re- resell them every single time you have to reconvince them. And, um, you have to do that with both sides of the marketplace, but consumers are a little bit, um, more forgiving and, and easier to convince if you can show them immediate value. Whereas the suppliers are really betting a big piece of their business future on you. And so you have to, kind of demonstrate over time that you're going to follow through on your promises. So I'd say just managing the three different constituencies in a marketplace and um, and then trying to evolve a business once you've had some, some success, especially for one part, you know, one constituency, uh, you know, the, the need to kind of keep iterating to make it even better um, presents challenges in terms of updating and re-educating.
0: So, so that's interesting because, you know, I've I been following ClassPass for I feel like 20 years, but I think it's been like seven or eight. And I've seen some of those business model changes. So, you know, when you're doing those changes and the tweaks, is it who are you more concerned about keeping the su- the suppliers or you know, supplier demand? Because, you know, marketplace, it feels like it's never no you know, it's it's chicken or egg and you ready like how do you make sure you have balance to grow and how have you handled this?
1: It's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I I'll probably end up writing a book after <laughs> this, you know, once we have hopefully a favorable outcome. Didn't see the pandemic coming, but um you know, we've been through a number of challenges. So as you said, we, we did really two big business model pivots um, since I uh, started operating the business. The first was we moved away from unlimited workouts for a fixed fee, because we have unlimited, we're taking, you know, one charge from consumers, but then paying out gyms and suppliers on a variable basis. So you end up with these small cohort of power users who are driving most of the value from the system. And suppliers didn't love it because it sort of devaluing, you know, their pricing and stuff like that. They were only giving us weak spots, uh, off-peak uh, spots, and so forth. So, um, the first change we made was just for our own unit economics, and because suppliers hated the unlimited model, we moved to cap plans. So we said you could you can pay for ten visits a month, or five visits a month, or twenty visits a month, uh, and that kind of worked. But we still didn't have a variable mechanic to do things like surge pricing, which uh, opened up. We, we then moved to this credit system. So now you buy. We have a virtual currency. You buy these credits, they expire, although they roll over. We want you to actually use them because if you don't use them, you churn, it's a month-to-month service. And um, and, and so now a supplier can join the platform, even if they're a really premium brand, like a Solid Core or, you know, uh, Bears Bootcamp or uh, Rumble Boxing was a recent convert to ClassPass who's had great success. They've been really reluctant when it was only super cheap spots. They joined, they're able to command a, a premium price point, or charge lower prices for off-peak, higher prices for peak. Um, and 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 that actually ended up working better. Customers were happy to sometimes pay more for a, a class or a spot um, if the choice was up to them and if it provided more optionality. Interesting. So those are the, yeah, those are the model iterations. Um, you know, and the challenges of going through them really kind of reflects back. It, it, the first one was really to save our own business in, in response to suppliers. You know, we were going unit economic negative, and as a cohort would mature, uh, a cohort would mature. You had an what we call adverse selection, where the the power users would be the ones to stay longer. So the profitability of a cohort would decay over time. Uh, combined with the fact that suppliers hated the unlimited model, that's why we moved to cap plans, and we were on the cap plan model for about a year. Um, but that's when we saw, hey, there's still suppliers not joining because they can't charge more. There's still suppliers holding back spots that are going to waste at zero dollars because their expected value is above, you know, whatever rate they were paying for remnant inventory. Um, and we couldn't introduce things like massage or cryo or okay. infrared sauna or a visit to the Four Seasons Spa in Singapore if uh, we had a single price point, right? So the the introduction of a variable pricing mechanic was actually in the best interest of all of our constituents. Class Pass was sort of uh, neutral from a unit economic standpoint, although retention went up. So I guess we're better off from an LTV standpoint. But it's really about giving customers more choice and flexibility and giving partners more of a, a way to uh, to monetize their excess capacity.
0: Yeah it sounds like you got to model that made more sense for all the stakeholders. Um i you know so it sounds like like and I think for everything I read and everything I saw you got to with this new new model. Everything's chugging along and then I'll go to like Julia mentioned it there. Um, COVID hit. So two questions what what how, how do you react and then we'll, well and then julia's asking what's the best thing that's come out of this so far yeah
1: great i mean yeah it's a great question i, I certainly uh navigating a, a fitness and wellness company through a pandemic was not high on my list of career aspirations um but you know the old the old adage of better be lucky than than good we we raised uh, 285 million dollars which we closed on like christmas eve so um, we're well capitalized to sort of withstand the storm. Uh, it, it was interesting because we had a unique vantage point being in 30 countries and having many Asian sure. countries. We actually saw the impact of COVID on our business before most American businesses, American centric businesses, or, or Canadian centric businesses would have. Um, so we saw what happened. And what was interesting was. Uh, you know, seeing what happened in, in in China, they just shut it down. But in in Singapore and in Hong Kong, um, the government response was so competent that it it sort of lulled us into a false sense of complacency. We were like, "Oh, okay, um, they did a quick shutdown and then they reopened because they instituted border controls, contact tracing, rigorous and pervasive testing schemes." And so we're like, oh, OK, now there's a model for how you deal with this pandemic. And it's being shown by these Southeast Asian countries, Korea and Taiwan. And people are still working, to, w- willing to work out as long as they you know, feel healthy and um, uh, feel safe. And then we saw it come into Europe and Europe just got totally gobsmacked. And then within days, it was in America. I remember hearing about the first community outbreak case in Seattle and in and, and the Bay Area. And within eight days, I think it was, um, you know the ninety six percent of our partners had actually shut their their doors. Wow, so we went from having you know tens of millions of dollars in revenue a month to um we decided to stop charging partners. Some other fitness players out there kept charging partners. We just put everyone onto a pause membership plan and turned our attention to how do we keep these studios and gyms in business. So we launched in ten days a live streaming platform so those people could just put their classes online or training and and monetize. And then we launched a, a partner relief fund, donation matching scheme where we match up to a million uh, of donations, and uh, and and now we're kind of focused on helping them reopen. Um, we've been doing a lot of government advocacy to encourage a stronger government response because I ultimately think that's going to be key to how fast we we bounce back. But it was it was pretty disruptive.
0: So to say the least. T- two questions because um, we're running short short on time. One, I'll take a Aditi's a question. It's so now you're competing with the at home fitness market. Um, So, and it seems like it's a lot more crowded. So how do you become distinctive and how are you, you know, how are you basically competing online?
1: Yeah. So I don't think anybody had um, aggregated live streaming. In fact, most of our, the 4,000 or 5,000 partners we have doing live stream classes, most of them weren't doing that before. So we're not really competing uh, from a user experience standpoint in terms of connected fitness. We're simply giving you access to video on demand or live classes from your favorite trainer, instructor, brand, what have you, but now you can take a live class from Singapore and if you're in LA or a class in, uh, you know, if you're in Toronto from New York city. Um, and and so no one had just done that. And it's it kind of remains to be seen how, how, perv- how much that will persist when things go back to normal. Um, so that was the first opportunity was we have over a million people using our app. Let's just move what people are doing offline, online and let them have at it. Um, we also see ourselves as complementary to a lot of the connected fitness stuff. So I'm in talks with several of those guys about, Hey, um, if people own Pelotons, a spin instructor in Toronto could launch her own Peloton classes mm-hmm. with people. Or if you own a tonal fitness at home gym, you could do personal training sessions and just use class pass to schedule and monetize your audience.
0: Interesting. And then you, you beat me to the punch a bit. I was going to ask what do you say? Well, how do you think this will permanently change the fitness landscape? Do you think some people will stay at home? Like, any gut feels, any insight right now?
1: Yeah, I think that um, there was already some accept- some migration of either inactivity or offline fitness that was moving to digital. Right, digital fitness unlocks uh, unlocks fitness for a certain cohort of customers, especially those who um, are really time constrained or really nervous about working out physically in a space. You know, it's intimidating sometimes. Um, you tend to need to have a lot more disposable income to afford a Peloton or a Tonal or a fight camp, um, Toronto, uh, originated company. Um, but, uh, but so, so I think the convenience factor of at home, it's also more immersive than, you know, the old Bowflex kind of stuff or, or, uh, just a dance video or whatever. Um, so it's, it's a great experience in, in many ways. I'm a consumer of it. Um, and I think this is accelerating that migration more. It's getting more people to try it. However, um, we, th- we don't think it's going to kind of be one size fits all. We think in the same way that the best solution for fitness for each of us is some different permutation of experiences. It's very unique to our taste. I think that the future is going to be heterogeneous in terms of offline and online mm. workouts. Like the online experience is still nothing like going yeah. to a dedicated fitness studio, having that community element, having an instructor maybe yell at you, m- more encourage you, having that music pumping um it just can't be replicated with like a a vr headset you know i don't i don't think i could do most of my workouts with with my oculus on so Uh, so that's one change and then i think the second is uh, perhaps temporal uh which is uh off uh outdoor workouts and more organized workouts outdoors so our customers are demanding this in amsterdam they've really cracked the code and moved basically studio fitness out into parks and uh and and stuff like that and i'm really hoping that um or they'll like rent a hotel or or an Airbnb and host classes there or like outdoor clubs. It's really cool. And um, and all indications we have is that that same thing's going to happen
0: here. Interesting. I have, a, I have a city park across the street from me, and I noticed on the weekends there's always boot camps, so maybe we'll uh, see more of those. You know, Yeah. Uh, Fritz, thank you so much for your time. I could ask you another 20 questions, but I think I'll get uh, in trouble with the rest of the team. So thanks for sharing some knowledge with us. Maybe we might ping you with a couple of follow-up questions.